Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. On tonight's readings, we are going to read from with Carson and Fremont, The Trail Journals of the Two First Government Exploring Expeditions, commanded by Lieutenant John Charles Fremont, and advised by Kit Carson. They are mountain men, and they are travelling through the Old West in the spring of 1845. I hope you enjoy it. And I also would like to say special thank you to a couple of listeners, Dougal's mum and Ali Smith, who have left reviews on Apple Podcasts, United States and Australia. I enjoy bringing out episodes and I need your help to keep bringing out more episodes to more people who need a good night's rest. It's very easy and it's also free of charge. All I need is for you to subscribe to the podcast and if you would be so kind, leave a rating and also leave a review. In the meantime, I would like you to relax, lie back and enjoy the readings. With Carson and Fremont, Chapter 1, Kit Carson to the Rescue It was the middle of November, 1840, and across the sandy face of southwestern Kansas was toiling, outward bound from Missouri, a Santa Fe caravan, 52 huge, creaking canvas-topped wagons, drawn each by six or eight span of mules or yoke of oxen, In this day the so-called foreign government of Mexico extended north through New Mexico to the Arkansas River in Colorado and southwestern Kansas. The United States stopped at the Rocky Mountains and moreover from Missouri to the Rockies, all was Indian country and the great American desert. From Missouri extended two long roads or trails, separating like a V with its point near present, Kansas City. Up the Platte River for the northwest ran the old trappers and fur traders trail, now being made the Oregon Trail of Emigrants. Up the Arkansas River, for the southwest, ran the trail of the Santa Fe caravans. The desolate, unimproved Great American Desert was like a sea, and across this sea sailed, spring and fall, upon an 800-mile voyage, fleets of American wagons to trade with the capital of northern Mexico. They took out cargoes of coleco, powder, lead, flour, shoes, 
and such American products. They brought back at profit in money and a loss in life. Cargoes of furs, hides, gold, gay blankets and such Mexican products. The caravan of November 1840 with its 52 wagons and harnessed teams had at the beginning of the journey stretched out in a line almost a mile length. Each wagon had a teamster. Some of the teamsters straddled the near animal of the wheel span, the span next to the wagon. Others in their boots and flannel shirts and broad hats walked beside the wagon. Horsemen escort to the wagon captain, who was the boss of the train, led the march, reconnoitring ahead of the other horsemen, paced at right and left. And at the rear of all, upon an old mule, driving a collection of loose horses and mules, rode a ragged little boy, Oliver Wiggins. This was Oliver's place in the dust at the tail of the long caravan. His duty was to herd the cavy, as was styled for short the cabard larder, Spanish for horse herd. His pay was $5 a month, and the fun and the glory and the work of 50 days travel at the rate of 15 miles a day across the plains of sand and sage, buffalo and antelope, hunger and thirst, storm and Indians, to strange far-off Santa Fe. At first the march had been very unpleasant. The caravan sometimes had spread out over the prairie in formation of four abreast. By day, the teamsters had sung and cracked their long whips. Beside the wagons by night, they had sung and told old stories beside the campfires. Everybody had been happy, but within the last two days, the atmosphere had changed for there had come riding fast on the homeward way from Mexico two traders and had left the word with the captain. Watch sharp, the Kiowas are out. That was enough. Quickly through the caravan spread the news. The Kiowas are out. All carelessness, all singing ceased and the order of march was made double file or two abreast, so that in case of the attack, the wagons could swing to right and left and quickly join in a great circle. The Kiowas, the fiercest fighting Indians of the southwest plains were they, outrivaled by neither Pawnee nor Comanche, their name was terrible 
to the Santa Fe traders. Their range was southwestern Kansas and southeastern Colorado, thence south into the dread, common-shaped country below the Arkansas. When the caravan had left Missouri, the Kiowas were said to be at peace, but now they were said, on good authority, to be not at peace. And well might wagon Captain Blunt worry. He had a lot of green teamsters, poorly armed with old smooth-bore Jaegers, and weather, if given time to form a circle of wagons, they could beat off the painted warriors. He did not know. Holding the rear of all, boy Oliver Wiggins, aged thirteen, left to the dust and the shuffling loose stock, defenceless beasts, a prize for the Indians, also well might worry. He wished now that he had not run away from home, and he began to wonder whether, after all, his pistol, about the size of the palm of his hand, was large enough. The pistol had seemed to him a weapon in plenty for fighting Indians. In Missouri, but the farther from Missouri he journeyed, the more stories he heard, and the smaller the pistol grew. Here in southwestern Kansas of today, the Santa Fe Trail veered south, beyond the great bend of the river, to cross and to head for the Cimarron Desert and for New Mexico. This, the crossing of the Arkansas, was halfway to Santa Fe, but the half already covered was the easy half. The half to come was the dry, thirsty half, and the Kiowa and Comanche half. Through the shallow water and the quicksands forged the wagons of the blunt caravan upon the farther bank to halt, for camp and to fill the water casks. The sun was low and red in the west. The long, high, white-hooded wagons had been parked in the customary circle. Outside the circle campfires were curling, pots were bubbling, meat was hissing, and before each camp tethered animals were grazing, sentries had been posted, and boy Oliver, hungry and grimy, was guarding his browsing cavy when a sudden commotion struck the peaceful scene. A sentinel upon a sand hill fired his gun to signal Injuns, Injuns, and rushed the wildfire, the word. Every teamster sprang to round up his picketed team, or to help collect the oxen. 
the sentries came in at a gallop, and men sped to help Oliver with the cavy. Through the opening left in the circle of wagons poured men and animals from outside and to the inside, and against the sunset glow could be described a long file of black-mounted figures approaching at rapid trot. However, Captain Blunt, viewing them by spyglass, shouted thankfully, Not Injuns, men, whites, look like traders. Whereupon a sigh of relief swept the tense cordon. The cordon did not dare yet go to open out again. Nevertheless, as the riders across the rolling sand hills neared, they were seen by the naked eye to be whites indeed. They resolved into a double file of horsemen, trapper-clad in fringed buckskin shirts and leggings, in broad-brimmed hats, in moccasins, and every man carried across his saddle horn a tremendously long rifle. Mountain men, trappers, announced Teamster, Dutch Jake in Oliver's hearing. Now if we only had them with us. They're the chaps to make the engines stand round, agreed another, and many a head nodded. The cavalcade was within gunshot. A man riding alone was leader, and as on they came, at the steady, fast rack or single foot, straight for the camp, he held up his hand, palm outward in a peace sign. Hi, Jinx. I know that man, exclaimed Dutch Jake, and he added, If it only be now, Captain Blunt and two or three of his lieutenants carrying their guns walked outside a few steps to meet this leader. The conversation was wafted clearly through the still, dry air while all the camp listened. Howdy, howdy, who's your captain? This from the horseman. I'm the captain, this from Blunt. Wall, my name's Kit Carson. We've come over from Taos to ride the trail through Kiowa country with anybody that needs us. Suppose you know the Kiowas are bad. So we've heard, and we're mighty glad to see you, Mr. Carson declared Captain Blunt, reaching up and shaking hands heartily. Kit Carson, Kit Carson. The name passed from lip to lip around the wagon cordon, and a hundred eyes were fastened eagerly upon the spot where now this leader squatted beside a fire as a guest and counsellor 
of Captain Blanc. The others in the party, which numbered about forty, had unsaddled like lightning, had turned their horses out under a guard, and starting fires or gnawing strips of jerked meat were making their own camp near at hand. Darkly tanned, long-haired, broad-shouldered men were they, the majority heavily bearded. They moved lithely in moccasins, their buckskin suits were patched and stained. They scarcely stirred without rifle in hollow of the arm. Their belts bore pistol or pair of pistols, and knife, their talk was a curious jargon, but very expressive, and they themselves were exceedingly businesslike. But the wonderful Kit Carson, famous hunter and Indian fighter, was that really he? Of course, everybody on the Santa Fe Trail knew about Kit Carson, the free trapper and captain of trappers, who merely, as a boy, had made such a name for himself in the mountains, and who recently had come out of them to live at Fernandez de Tau and to supply meat for Bent's North. Ere leaving the Missouri frontier, little Oliver had heard of Kit Carson as though he were ten feet tall and four feet wide and bore a pine tree for a club. But now little Oliver beheld an ordinary-looking person, not much taller than himself, and not nearly so tall as many of the other trappers, with wiry body, bandy legs, flat features, and a voice so ridiculously low that his present conversation with Captain Blunt did not carry beyond the campfire light. Murmured comment by teamsters here and there among the wagons showed to Oliver that he was not alone in his disappointment. That's Kit Carson, is it? That little fella with the captain. Well now, I thought Kit Carson was some pumpkins. A big engine liable to pick him up. Where's his whiskers? But Dan Matthews, Captain Blunt's first lieutenant, came hurrying from point to point in the circle. Turn out your critters, men, and you guards post yourselves as before. Lively, there's likely no danger tonight. Carson says, but keep your eyes and ears open just the same. Is that really Kit Carson, that little chap? queried Teamster Henry as the camp bustled to resume its routine. Yes, Henry grunted. Well, he's the smallest pea for the amount of pod I've ever seen. 
Don't you be fooled, Henry, retorted Lieutenant Matthews. You wait a bit, and if you don't find that he's got the biggest do for the size of his towel that you ever came across, I'll eat my hat. That's right, affirmed Dutch Jake, overhearing. Bragg's a good dog, but he won't fight, and you mustn't judge a racehorse by the colour of his hide. You're seeing one Kit Carson, a gentle-speaking, mild-appearing, soft sort of nincompoop of a man who you might think didn't know beans. But there's another Kit Carson, half the size of half an alligator and half the size of a horse. As they say on the Mississippi, or half grizzly and half charging elk. As I say, and I reckon you'll see him too, for we're through engine company. These words of Dutch Jake impressed Oliver deeply, for Jake spoke as if he knew. At any rate, was pleasant to have the reinforcements, to watch their easy figures, to hear their voices, to stroll through their camp, and catch their conversation, to note their fringed, beaded clothing, their worn weapons, and their wildly shaggy faces, and to feel their presence so handy. When, in the darkness, the fires died and both camps went to sleep, all the next day the march proceeded southward from the Arkansas, amid stand hills and sparse vegetation, the trappers from Tau rode in a line long either side of the train, with scouts ahead and out upon the flanks. The men of the train laughed and talked, bantering back and forth, and behind in the rake of the procession boy Oliver, ragged and upon his old mule, driving the cavy, strained eye and ear to keep tab upon what was being done and said. At the noon, the camp had the opportunity to scan, close by daylight, Kit Carson again. Kit Carson proved to have a square face, rugged and weather-beaten, with a sandy moustache, and framed in long brown hair combed smoothly down behind the ears. His cheekbones were high, somewhat Indian-like. His forehead was high and full, with mouth straight and his chin firm. His most remarkable features was his eyes wide apart, level set, and of an intensely steely grey that fairly bored a hole where they looked. His movements were quick and sure, 
and how he stuck to a horse. Oliver the more believed that Dutch Jake and Lieutenant Matthews both knew better than Henry and the other gamblers. Something about Kit Carson said so. Despite the rough joking, the march was an earnest one. No staggering was permitted to shoot antelope or elk. Yet the day was not uneventful, for once a great brown-bearded man, his beard reaching almost to his belt, who was Solomon Silver, a Carson man dropping back, rode beside the cavy until, having good-naturedly eyed Oliver, he joined him to query, perhaps, as a joke. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you have enjoyed it, and I hope it has made you feel drowsy. Looking forward to bringing you more again soon. In the meantime, feel free to pop on another episode. And good night.